Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can I move down there? Because this feels weird, right? Like lights and can I just come down? Can we just hang out? Can we just be friends? Let's just be, oh, it's so much better. Maybe just, maybe just the house lights go up a little. I don't know. You guys are in charge, not me. Uh, Christian is very kind. Christian, uh, it was so fun to be a part of this community, and Christian was such a part of the band and what we were trying to build together. And um, so our family spent two years here, uh, part at CPC, about the last six months of when the upper room was being planted, which seems to be a theme, uh, a, a thing that's going on is planting churches. And, uh, you know, I know those can be awkward situations, and it, uh, to be honest, it was for us a little bit too back then. And uh, I just want to say that what God planted in the upper room and what he did in us in that season and what he did, uh, again, more in us than through us was pretty amazing. And um, so I'm just thrilled that this continues to be a church that says we don't have to have all the answers. And when things go a certain direction, we're just going to keep starting churches if we need to, because that's way better than what most churches do in these situations. So I just want to commend you. And um, and Matt and the people who are going to start a church, I've done that myself, both at the Upper Room and then also in Chicago, I planted a church, and um, there's no greater adventure or challenge, uh, and it's beautiful, and I just think it's awesome, so I just want to cheer you on in that. So our family spent two years here, and then about seven years ago, we moved back to Chicago, which was home for us, and uh, that move took us to a downtown church right in the heart of the city called Willow, Chicago, where I spent the last six years as the lead pastor there. Uh, It's one of the seven churches that make up Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicagoland area, and um, we built this urban multicultural community right in the heart of downtown, the most violent city in America, Uh, and it was a grand adventure to build this church, and I've loved it, and uh, then during that time, my wife, Christina, which some of you may remember, she uh, became the VP of Marketing at World Relief, this global nonprofit. Now, she travels the world and raises the cause of the poor in our world and how important Uh, that cause is, especially in these days in the world we live in. And so she does that, and she's doing awesome. And I have two boys. I think they have a picture of them. Those are my boys. Uh, They have their strong, like, mom t-shirts on because their mom rocks. And uh, she's, uh, when we met, she was ranked fourth in the world in karate. So they are, they can be strong like mom. Uh, And I'm incredibly well-behaved at home. Um... So that's Gabe on the right and Will on the left. And they were three and four when we left here, uh, this community. Now they're uh, 11 and 10, and uh, they're doing awesome. And so that's our family. And a part of that whole crazy journey for us over the last seven years is I went back to school and earned my MBA in um, Notre Dame, go Irish. And uh, that has fostered John uh, Crosby and I's relationship because he's a diehard fan of the Irish. And uh, so I went back to school. And then recently I've left the church that I was at for those six years and launched a new firm, a consulting firm that helps. uh, It's called the Better Good Group. And it helps organizations and companies who have a social good predisposition do it better than they would otherwise. So grand adventures since we left. But all that to say, it is so good to be back. It just feels like family every time I come back here. Uh, to see this community, and um, it's a special thing here, and uh, again, it's an honor to be with you. So uh, I want to dive right in to our topic for tonight, uh, and I just want to start with a question. Uh, Where does God meet you? Maybe a different question would be, where can God meet us? Where does God choose to meet us? 
What is the nature of this relationship of God's interaction with us? Because I think the global church tells a bit of a wrong narrative about this. I think the church tries to tell us that God meets us in buildings. That God meets us when we have our Sunday best on. That God meets us when we have it together. That God meets us when we aren't living engulfed in sin and we're finally ready to be used by him. God meets us when we have the answers resolved, not when we're in the ugliness of doubt. I think there are all these narratives that are actually, as we're going to study and unpack a little bit today, the opposite of how God meets us. I think we've got this one wrong. And we're going to study one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It's this little-known story in the book of Acts, chapter 8, that you quite possibly haven't ever heard taught in church because uh, it's skimmed over because it's kind of weird. And uh, the disciple Luke wrote the book of Acts. Uh, He wasn't an apostle. He didn't walk directly with Jesus, but he was one of the seven who were appointed, and we'll dive into that in a minute too. So this guy Luke wrote the book of Acts. And what we're going to study is just these 14 verses that teach us this valuable lesson of the nature of where God meets his children, where the Father, the creator of all things, engages with his creation. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Acts. I think there's some in your pews. You can grab one of those, or it'll be on the screen as well. I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll just walk back through it verse by verse. It starts in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran. I love that. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So we've just heard this story. And this story at face value is an interesting story. There is a subtext to this story, as with most of the Scripture, that is beyond profound. So I want us to walk back through and unpack a little deeper what is in the story. Verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. In my experience in studying the Word of God, Any section of scripture that starts with the words an angel of the Lord said is about to get crazy. (laughs) Think think about it. The angel of the Lord said to her, you will be with child 
and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush and told him to go free the people of Israel from the Egyptians. The angel of the Lord appeared. The angel of the Lord said, things get crazy in Scripture when that starts. So that's how this story begins. When you read the Bible, when you immerse yourself in this great book, things like that become triggers to stay aware of. Like something's about to happen that is incredibly important. The angel of the Lord said to Philip. So Philip is the first part, our first character in this story. Philip, as I said a few minutes ago, was one of the seven. The disciples, the apostles, they were 12 of them. They were Jesus' closest compadres. Then there were 11. Judas made some bad choices. There were 11, and they were doing the work of building the kingdom, except that they were neglecting one of the most important calls in all of Scripture, which is the poor. They were so busy building churches that they lost track of the poor. Uh Uh-oh. Could that be a bit of a conviction for the American church today? So they came up with a solution. They decided to appoint the seven, these seven disciples who were devout followers of Jesus. And they said, okay, these seven will do the work of the widows and the orphans and the poor. They will care for them. They will watch over them. They will meet their needs. One of those seven was a guy named Stephen. You may remember even just a few chapters before this in the book of Acts, Stephen runs into a guy named Saul, and Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. Stephen was one of the seven. One of the other was Philip. So Philip's one of the seven. He's got an incredibly important job in serving those in need. He's the first character in our story. The next part goes on to say that he was on the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is an important distinction as well. There were two roads on this 30-mile journey between Jerusalem and Gaza. One road was called the King's Road that most people took. The other was the desert road. It was a road you didn't want to take. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan where he's walking down a road. It's a bad road. He gets jumped, beat up, harmed. That's the kind of road the desert road was known as. So in Chicago, again, I mentioned that it's the most violent city in America right now. There are neighborhoods in our city that you know not to go through at certain times. That's the the idea of the desert road. This was not a road you wanted to take. But God called Philip to take that road, the less traveled road, the desert road, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27. So he started out, and on the way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So the writer, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, of the book of Acts is this guy Luke, and we believe he was a doctor, but at a minimum we know that all of his writing is from a historical perspective. So when you read the Bible and you read like the book of Revelation, it's this dream John had, and it's kind of psychedelic. It's more like reading the Lord of the Rings, right? Like it's this epic battle between good and evil. You don't read Revelation in the same way you read Psalms, which is poetic literature, And you don't read that in the same way you read Genesis, which is Moses recording from God's inspiration the story of creation and the beginning of all things. You don't read different books of the Bible the same way because the context context matters. Well, Luke, being a historian, writes incredible detail, and everything he writes is intentional. So he refers to this man not as anything but the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Now, what we know about this man, because he served the, as one of the main advisors over the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia, who was one of the wealthiest people in that day, we know that he's royalty. Now, why would royalty be traveling on the desert road? It makes no sense. No representative of a, a wealthy king or queen would ever take this road if given the option. So the difference is the Ethiopian part. So my sons, uh, they're growing up like, in an urban environment, so they eat a lot of different ethnic food. And their favorite restaurant, all of Chicago, is Ethiopian Diamond. If you're ever in Chicago, I highly recommend it. Best Ethiopian food. So they love it. We just went this last week. When you go there and you're served by the Ethiopian community, what you realize if you don't interact often with the Ethiopian community is Ethiopians have this beautiful, dark black skin. It's like a, it's an extremely dark shade. So this man, even in the Middle East, would have stuck out. His skin color would have told the Jews he interacted with that he was a foreigner. Do you remember how the Old Testament talked to the Jews about foreigners? They had all these laws about avoiding them. Now, the New Testament tells us a totally different narrative. In fact, it says there is no longer slave or free or Jew nor Greek. At the feet of Jesus, we are all equal and all equally worth everything to the Father. Like there's... The new covenant changed all that perspective. But this is very new in the new covenant. He's taking the desert road because he is a foreigner and it wouldn't be wise for him to take the other road. He's staying hidden, even though he's a wealthy royal. So he's on this road. The other thing that's interesting about this guy is in the idea of him being an Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the mark, the symbol of God's chosen people? It's kind of a weird one. Circumcision. I know, I just said that in church. That was the mark. And in Deuteronomy, it talks about eunuchs being unclean because they cannot be circumcised. So this man was considered under Jewish law to be unclean. Now, Philip knew all this. This man that he's about to encounter is biblically unclean for his foreignness and his inability to be made clean by circumcision. So that's the setting that we're getting from this historian, Luke, telling us about this interaction for Philip. So again, it says, verse 27, so he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot and reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. He's reading the book of Isaiah. The church reads a lot of Isaiah in what season of the year? Christmas. That's exactly right. Isaiah was the prophet who talked about Jesus. 700 years before the existence of Jesus, this guy Isaiah is telling us about the birth. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's all from Isaiah. He prophesied about Jesus' birth and his death. Isaiah is the Jesus prophet. So this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, is reading about Isaiah, reading from Isaiah, who wrote about Jesus, and along comes a guy who'd been a disciple of Jesus and was an expert on him. God is not accidental. God is intentional. So he's reading Isaiah. 
The Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Verse 30. Then Philip ran. How cool is that? When God says go, Philip runs. He doesn't go, well, I'm going to kind of inch over to that guy who looks like a foreigner. He's like, if you say it, God, I will run. And he runs to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Then he asked him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, chariots are not big. There's an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in a chariot. He invites Philip to come up and... Whoa. It's like the voice of God just arrived. He invites Philip to come up and sit with him. To sit right next to an unclean man reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah together. And of course, because Philip's heart is open because of God's prompting, he climbs up into the chariot. And this is what he's reading. Verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? From his life, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Verse 34, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See, in this prophecy section, at first glance, it's just words from Isaiah about Jesus' death that we just celebrated at Good Friday. But digging deeper, these words are crazy. See, he's just seeing that this prophet Isaiah, 700 years before, had predicted the death of Jesus that they had just encountered not that long before. But then he asked this question, the Ethiopian eunuch does, tell me, please, who is he talking about? Do you hear that desperation, even as how it's written? Tell me, please. Not just, would you please explain to me? Tell me, please. There's desperation in his voice. Tell me, Philip, I must know who is the writer talking about. Now let me pause for a second because I said earlier, Luke is an intentional historian in his writing style. He has specifically referred to this man over and over as the Ethiopian eunuch. If his name were of consequence, Luke would have told us about it. If his genealogy was of consequence, Luke would have told us about it. If anything about him other than that he was an Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of the queen's money, if anything else was important, he would have told us about it. Because that's the way he wrote. But he doesn't. He tells us Ethiopian so we understand he was a foreigner. He's not one of us, Luke is saying. The second word to describe this man has even more profound importance in this context. See, most eunuchs in the first century were born into slave families. So this boy, we know from historical studies of the practice of that time, that this boy would have been born into enslavement and poverty. The practice of the day was to take little boys from slave families when they were between the ages of 6 and 12. You can imagine the trauma of a slave owner 
barging into a family's home, grabbing a young child away from his parents with no regard and taking him away. I have to be totally honest, as a father of two boys in that age range when this was historically done, when I'm alone, like in quietness, I can barely read this chapter. Because I can see it in the eyes of my own sons. I can't imagine what I would do if someone ran into our house and just took them. I can't imagine what it would do to me. I can't imagine the sleepless searching That was the practice of the day. After being taken from his family, the tradition tells us he would be drugged to cause him to pass out. While unconscious, in a very barbaric fashion, his genitals would be cut off. This would be done to ensure that he could spend his life in service to the royal family while posing no threat to the women of the royal house. We know from this story that the Ethiopian eunuch was the head employee for the queen. Overall, he was the head of her treasury. A position reserved for males who were no sexual threat to her. This tragic and cruel narrative is likely what our character went through. Because again, we know from historical study, this was the practice. If you were a slave boy of that age, the odds are you would be taken and that would be done to you. With that context in mind, let's reread the prophecy that begins in verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. When the man in our story asks Philip if this story he's reading about is about the writer and someone else, when he begs Philip, please tell me who is he referring to, he's really asking, is this about me? Was the writer telling my story? How did he know that I would be like a sheep to slaughter, like an innocent young lamb who was silenced? I was silenced, Philip. I couldn't speak or open my mouth in protest. I didn't have a voice to say, no, don't do this. I don't want this for my life. Philip, I was humiliated and deprived of justice. You can imagine the shame I felt, the anguish when I woke. The pain and sadness. Where is the justice, Philip? How do I get back my manhood? This is not just. Simply because I was born into slavery, because I was born poor, my destiny was set this direction. That is not justice, but the definition of injustice. And yes, Philip, let's speak of my descendants. There will never be any. I won't ever be able to hold the child I longed to hold that was taken from me. My descendants were taken from the earth. How did the prophet Isaiah, Philip, how did he know 700 years ago my story? 
How did he prophesy so long ago what my life would be like? What would happen to me? How could he know my pain? If any of us in that moment were in Philip's place, I can just imagine that we would most certainly have tears running down, running down our cheeks as we listen to the man, this man trying to make sense of all this. How could our hearts not break at the painful journey he's processing maybe for the first time? And Philip, in his tenderness, the Bible tells us he starts right with those words to explain, to help the man understand that Jesus had walked a similar journey to his. I imagine Philip saying, you're not alone, my friend. The answer to your longing, the giver of all hope, has similar wounds to yours. He was stripped naked and beaten nearly to death. He was mocked and made fun of and hung on a cross. The humiliation and sadness that you feel, he bore it as well. He knows the emotions you experience. There is someone who understands my Ethiopian friend. Jesus starts his restorative work in us at our place of greatest wound. He did the same thing with everyone he encountered. When he met Zacchaeus, he met him at his wound. The woman at the well, he met her at her wound. Nicodemus at his wound. When he met Peter, after the betrayal again, he met him at his wound. The way of Jesus is meeting us at our broken parts, not our put-together self. This place that God wants to start to speak his love is the same in your life. He doesn't need you cleaned up and put together. He doesn't care what your position is, your title is. He doesn't care what wealth or influence you've accumulated. God wants to meet you where you are wounded that he might bring healing and restoration and make each of us whole again. The story of Philip and his new friend, the Ethiopian eunuch, ends in the most beautiful way. Their interaction doesn't stop there on the road. They go on together in the chariot. Can you imagine them riding together just talking about this person, Jesus? So they're riding along. And verse 36 tells us, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. What can stand in the way, the man asked Philip? Nothing. Not his wound, not his heritage, not anything else about him. With Jesus, his broken self was enough. It's believed that this interaction between Philip and the eunuch happened right around 50 to 60 A.D., so about 20 years after Jesus, less than 20 years after Jesus had left the earth 
after his resurrection. History books tell us that by 250 AD, there was one particular nation in all the world that was thriving and living out the teachings of Jesus in a profound way. Any guess what country that was that historians tell us in 250 AD was the hotbed of Christ followership in the world? Ethiopia. Scholars have tried to figure out how this happened. There are documentaries, I've seen some of them, and books written about the expansion of Christianity due to the followers of Jesus in Ethiopia. Much of the faith we practice in America today is traced to the lineage that comes out of Ethiopia in 250 AD. There are many theories about it for historians, theories about waterways that help them spread the news of Jesus. But if you ask any person in the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, they will tell you the story of an Ethiopian man who was on a road leading from Jerusalem. And on that road, he encountered a follower of Jesus that explained the love of God to him in a transformational way. And upon his return to Ethiopia, this man used his influence, his power, his wealth to tell others what he had experienced and learned. He helped others learn of the love of Jesus that could meet them at their place of greatest wound. And a nation was transformed. Jesus meets every person right where they are in a unique way, often tied to our greatest wound, pain, or hurt. He is longing to do the same for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would be just that in our presence today. That anyone here whose heart is tenderized by the story, that they might feel your presence with them right now that you would bring someone across their path even tonight or tomorrow that would remind them that your love meets them where they are. And God, anyone here who's told themselves the lie that they have to become something else for you to love them, would you just speak your love so loud that they can't ignore it? In your name, Jesus, amen.